Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, patients, families, colleagues, and curious folk to the PM&R Report. Our podcast is brought to you by the University of Texas at Houston in conjunction with McGovern Medical School and TIRR Memorial Hermann Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. We bring you another segment of medical explanation, reviews of current literature, expert opinions, debates, and just plain interesting stuffs. Okay, all right. My name is Saleh Sheik. I'm a PGY3 in the PMNR program here at UT Houston. I am here with Dr. Renee Flores, who is a assistant professor of geriatric and palliative medicine. And I will stop there and let her give a brief intro uh, about herself. Sure, so uh, yeah, I've been on faculty. I did my fellowship at UT um, in 2013. I actually was a hospitalist before and realized that uh, my passion lay within the geriatric community because I was taking care of uh, adults and then end of life care patients and didn't have the information or the guidance or tools to be able to take care of older adults. And so I stopped doing hospitalists and came back and did my geriatric training. And I've been on faculty since 2014. Um, I really have a big interest in um, geriatrics, um, sexual health. And so I actually have a couple of education certificates from the school of Mich or university of Michigan and also a European school of sexual medicine. So I actually have a sexual health clinic for older adults because I feel like in general, uh, physicians aren't talking about sex, but definitely not talking about sex within the older adult community. Yes. All right. Um, so what would you say is your favorite thing to do in Houston? Uh, could be a food destination or a park. Um, favorite thing to do in Houston. Um, I really like the bayous. Um, my husband and I used to kind of do the trails a lot. I used to live in Edo. Um, this was like pre-kids and pre-COVID. Mm -hmm. um, but the trails are awesome. There's, I think, over 25 or 45, I don't know, a huge number of trails within the Houston area that you can ride your bike, go for a run. You can take it up into um, and ride your bike to um, like a local brewery. Um, and you're not drinking and driving. And so enjoy yourself on a Sunday fun day or just a weekend to relax outside of medicine. That's right. Yeah, there's a lot to do here. I am quite fond of the parks as well and the food scene. All right. Uh, so what would you say your uh, practice is like in terms of clinical practice setting and the, and the population you most focus on? So my biggest practice setting, which is our acute care for elders, it's at Memorial Hermann. It's an inpatient unit. It's 14 beds. Um, the, the unique thing about the ACE unit is that the nurses are trained in geriatrics. So even when I have older adults on other floors, 
Uh, the nurses on the ACE unit are more aggressive with getting the patients out of bed, focusing on mobility, making sure that someone comes in and gives their tray um, and helps them with feeding if they have those impairments where they're not able to feed themselves. Um, and I see um, that care really impact our older adults compared to when our older adults are on the other floor. So I'm very fortunate to be able to work on the ACE unit. Not every hospital has an ACE unit. Um, and so really having a floor that focuses on our older adults is really important. And so I do mostly inpatient medicine. I mentioned I was a hospitalist before. And so my passion really lies in, in, in inpatient medicine. I do have an outpatient practice where I do primary care um, and then my sexual health um, specialty clinic. What does your sexual health specialty clinic look like? That's an interesting topic that I'm sure not a lot of people <laughs> Yeah, so there's about. an organization called ASECT, which is American or Association, American Association for Sexual Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. And so they're actually my certifying body. Um, so I'm certified in sexual health um, education and sexual health counseling. And so I get a mix of patients that come in. Um, sometimes they're for physiologic reasons, um, vaginal dryness, erectile dysfunction. Um, but as older adults, um, their, their relationships change. It might be because of hearing that the communication changes and I help these um, couples come back together and open up communication may be difficult to talk about sex or how their bodies have changed. And I do a lot of counseling uh, for older adults and sometimes there's a discrepancy in the partners. Maybe somebody wants a lot of sex, maybe somebody doesn't or is not interested and working them up from a physiologic standpoint about why desire might've changed um, or how the relationship changed um, or the dynamics of caregivers change and how does that play into the sexual life? So um, that's how I kind of help kind of facilitate um, their sexual health. And a lot of them just appreciate like nobody's ever talked to them about sex in their in their 80s. And they're like, my doctors never talked to me about this. And it's such a relief to be able to talk about it openly. But a lot of it is a lot of counseling, too. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm sure that the skill of having these difficult conversations in this type of clinic carries over to goals of care discussions and do on the, on the ACE unit. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap. It's funny because I was just telling my team yesterday that it takes practice and using the words with sexual health is almost deliver like delivery of bad news. Death and dying doesn't roll off the tongue, just like a lot of, you know, the um, genitals, you know, are hard to roll off the tongue for people because they're just not as comfortable talking about those words and just practicing and becoming comfortable with both dynamics for delivery and communication with with patients. So in your grand rounds talk, you mentioned uh, that you have become good at delivering bad news and you use this as a training point for young residents. And it is a very difficult skill to master. And you framed uh, or you gave us kind of a framework to do that. Um, could you maybe for the uh, listeners of the podcast, just summarize that and then also maybe um, tell us what are some common pitfalls or lessons that uh, young trainees encounter uh, when they're trying to develop this skill? Yeah, so one of the biggest pitfalls, I'm going to start there because I, I think we learn, you know, 
team again yesterday about we always remember the things that we did wrong and those are the things that we stick out or kind of beat up beat beat ourselves up about um but one of the biggest lessons i learned is you know i got signed out from a colleague um and they said the patient was hospice and so i went in on a monday morning and said hey i said you know i heard that you're waiting for the social work the social worker um they're going to come in and give you a list of hospice agencies and they were like what and i was like oh no um and the patient had stage four advanced hepatocellular carcinoma um, and was totally appropriate for hospice um, but maybe I heard that they were on hospice or ready for hospice, um, but that conversation or maybe what they heard wasn't exactly what they're, you know, there's so many different communication things that could have happened there. And I spent the whole week trying to band-aid the relationship and it, and it, I still kind of haunts me because the family really didn't trust me. I even used an, I mean, I used an interpreter. Um, the whole time it was a Vietnamese speaking family, um, but I used the interpreter, even with the live interpreter, I couldn't gain back that um, rapport. And so the biggest lesson that I learned was really saying like going in, even if I'm the PCP or, or the primary care team, I always go in and say, you know what, there's a lot of doctors on your team. You know, I'm your primary doctor and I'm trying to coordinate this. Tell me what you understand about what's been explained to you. Because when we're out of the room, cardiology stops by, GI stops by, PM&R stops by. And so sometimes, you know, because of the lag time of even note taking or relaying the information about what the plan is, um, I always kind of um, use it as a tool to help me get on the same page with the patient and saying, oh, yeah, so what did they tell you? Um, because even if you did tell them something doesn't mean that's what they understood. Um, and so kind of saying, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. Let me talk to the team. Um, I haven't had a chance to talk to them, but I'm going to follow up with you. Um, and like with this family, I should have gone in and said, hey, you know, this is the first day that I'm seeing you've been in the hospital for a few days. I just want to see what the team's told you so far about your care. Um, and it's been kind of the biggest lesson I've learned is saying, no matter what, just kind of play a little bit of, hey, I don't have all the information rather than starting from a place where I'm like, hey, I think I have the information and trying to back, you know, kind of um, backpedal to try to get myself out of a hole. Um, and so that's kind of been the biggest lesson. And I, I also talk about spikes with my learners. So spikes is another mnemonic, which is S is for setting, making sure that you are in a private place, looking at empathy, or I'm sorry, perception, invitation, knowledge, uh, empathy and then summary or support at the end. And so one of the things that I always kind of start with is getting perception. I think spikes should start with a P um, because I really feel like starting with that has saved so many um, heartaches and um, built so much rapport with, with patients. And we talked a little bit about um, the remap during the talk today. Um, and I know you mentioned you wanted me to kind of re-talk about that as well. So I kind of use um, spikes and remap together. And I really didn't know there was a mnemonic. One of my colleagues introduced me to remap, and it was something that I was already doing. But I think mnemonics kind of help um, learners and people that aren't um, as familiar. And then you kind of develop your own, your own strategy. But remap is reframe, emotion, map, 
align and propose a plan. So reframing is kind of taking what you've already heard or taking what the family's already gone through and um, putting it into words so that the um, headline can really be looking at reevaluation of the goals of care. So starting with, we think that, or we're worried that, um, and even I really like we worried that because it's showing that you care, you're worried about something and it's helping the family set up for almost like that, that they talk about the trigger, like, I'm sorry that, or I wish I had better news um, and really showing your concern for the patient. Um, emotion is kind of reiterating. It sounds like this has been pretty traumatic. You've had a hard time or it sounds like this is really sad for you and really reflecting back on what. Uh, the patient tells you. And then the M for map is tell me about some of the things that you enjoy doing. And so reestablishing, okay, they're in this new setting and they can't maybe do what they were doing before, but what can we do um, that will help them and really setting those expectations? Because I think sometimes patients come in and they've had a severe stroke or they've had a severe injury or illness and they expect they're, they're going to get back to where they were and they've been in the hospital for a few weeks, haven't moved, haven't walked, haven't gotten up because of these um, ailments and then saying, okay, well, it's going to take, you know, a lot of work to be able to do that and really talking about um, the things that they enjoy and trying to set expectations, I think is really important. And then looking at a line um, is really looking at um, the, the physician verbally reflecting back what they heard and saying, okay, I hear that you want to be able to do this and this is what it's going to entail. And sometimes patients will say, yeah, I tried that and I know that I can't do it. Or they want to do the three hours of rehab at an inpatient and realize that, you know, maybe one hour per day at a skilled nursing was more appropriate to their level of functioning. So trying to come to terms with that. And sometimes it's harder, especially if patients come in and they were driving before and they had this acute stroke, so they were fine one day and the next day they weren't. Um, and trying to figure out what their new baseline is. And I think that's the hardest, is trying to figure out what our goals for them and how are we gonna kind of meet in the middle and aligning that. Um, and then the last thing is proposing a plan. So given what you've told me, it sounds like you've tried the three hours of rehab. And my recommendation is that I feel like you would still benefit from rehab and thinking about skilled nursing, which still offers the rehab one hour per day and can try to get you adjusted so that you're able to get some support at home. So really looking at proposing a plan that kind of aligns with that step before that and meeting them in the middle. Wow, a lot of good information. I, I During my intern year, I was able to uh, sit in on a few very in-depth goals of care discussions um, on the palliative service at Memorial Hermann. Uh, it's, it's just a great exercise in effective communication and then listening and can be applied uh, to all aspects of medicine and life. So in your uh, goal setting discussions, uh, how often does uh, inpatient rehab come up? And if it does, um, do you do you then call in your PM&R colleagues, or how do you how do you go about uh, addressing it and discussing it? Um, usually, 
I most of the time when um, I call PM&R, it's because I'm usually recommending th something more aggressive, or I think the patient can do more. Um, you know, and the and the the goal for case managers and and social workers, they're to help us with the resources. And sometimes being at the patient's bedside and having these goals of care discussion and really getting a good history from the patient can kind of say, yes, in fact, they can tolerate more. Um, and I feel like one hour of rehab would be a disservice um, to the patient, especially if their baseline is really good. Like if they are were more functional and had more um, independence as far as the instrumental activities of daily living. And physical therapies like, oh, home with home health. And I'm like, well, wait, they don't have support. Or they're saying, oh, skilled nursing, they can benefit from one hour. And I'm like, but they were driving and now you're saying they're going to go to a skilled nursing. I'm like, skilled nursing isn't going to give them as way um, below what I think that they can do. Um, and it's usually they kind of to iron out and get the support of PM&R. And, you know, I mentioned I think I mentioned during this talk, you know, like we have a lot of the same goals, geriatrics and PM&R, because mobility is such a big thing with you guys or a big goal for you guys. I think it overlaps. And so we try to put the patient in the best environment for them to improve quality of life and, and maintain that independence. Because as the end of the day, we can do remap, we can do goals of care discussion. Um, and if a patient says it or not, what they're saying is, I want to maintain my independence. I want to be able to do exactly what I was doing before I came in the hospital. Um, and they may say that in a different, in different words, like, I want to be able to return home. I want to be able to sit on the porch. I want to be able to go to my kid's graduation. Whatever it is, at the end of the day, I think independence is, is, is an umbrella for whatever is going to come next. And what would you say is your favorite thing about working with uh, PM&R? Don't be shy. Um, I love. I just. I just love PM&R. I, I think. I, I just feel like we're we're um, torn from the same cloth um, because we our goal is really to improve quality of life, and I feel like um, other specialties. Not to knock on other specialties, um, but if we're talking about you know car really focus on the heart or neurology kind of really focuses on the brain. Um, but even if the brain is working, we need our arms and our legs and other things to kind of help feed us and dress us and bathe us and get us to the toilet. Um, and that PM&R and geriatrics really has that commonality that that really draws me to to that specialty, to draws me to PM&R. Couldn't agree with you more. Function and quality of life. Yes, there's a big overlap between the two specialties. Uh, so let's talk off-label meds. You mentioned valerian root. This is a huge untapped resource in medicine, maybe a little controversial, but uh, what uh, what have you found works? Um, so I don't know if you're familiar with valerian root. So I personally have taken melatonin um, and I don't think it works. There are some patients that are like, I'm never leaving my melatonin. So, you know, everybody is, you know, it's kind of like where people say tramadol really works. And then some people really need like Norco or Oxy and people's metabolism is so different. So what works for one person is not necessarily uh, what works for another. So our older adults and PM&R patients, none of them are cookie cutter. Like you can't just say, hey, this is the patient and they look like this, because at the end of the day, they may not respond the way that we think they do, even if they look exactly like that other person. Um, and so I tried valerian root um, 
it smells awful. Like you put it in and close the bottle and you can still smell it with the medicine cabinet closed. Um, but I think if you're willing to try something, it is off label. Um, it has a horrible smell even in the capsule. Um, but I find that it helps um, with sleep. And I think because we don't know what it interacts with, it has to be kind of reserved for patients that don't have a lot of medical problems. Maybe that they're only on a little bit of Tylenol here and there. Um, and there's no studies that really even kind of look at any off-label medications. And so we don't know what it's going to do. I had a patient who came in and was like taking, um, I think it was called like Prostate Pro or something. And he's like, I decided to stop taking my finasteride. Stop the, taking the tamsulosin. I'm going to take this prostate. I'm like, okay, do you know what's in that? And so, of course, I Google it and it's saw palmetto. And so, saw palmetto helps with problems, but again, we don't know what it kind of interacts with unless it's looked at uh, very closely. Um, and unfortunately, off these off labels, another off label one that I really like <laughs> is CBD oil. Um, I have people buy CBD oil cream that it helps with arthritis. I've had patients say that it helps with their mentation. I had a patient, in fact, came in with advanced dementia. I started her on like the memantine and the denepazil, and it kind of just snowed her and zombied her out. And the family's like, you know, I'm going to try the CBD gummies or something. And I saw her and she's like a completely different person. She's talkative. She's going back to church. She's at social activities when she was like not talking before. And these medications that we prescribe, you know, just kind of made her a different person and using these over the counters. And it's really hard as as some you know physician, I say, oh, you know, when when patients ask, have you heard of this? And I say, you know, we don't know the side effects. We don't know what's going on. I've had it work with other patients and just say, you know, if you start feeling bad on it, just stop it, you know, um, just like this prostate pro. Well, you don't want to take these medications. We know kind of a little bit about some palmetto. I don't know how it's interacting with your other medications. If you start feeling lightheaded, dizzy, kind of the ER precautions, then please stop the medication, make an appointment to come and see me. Um, and the ER is always a resource for those emergencies. Um, but that's kind of how I use over the or off-label medications, CBD oil or CBD cream, valerian root, um, because even though we don't have the research clinically, we see improvements in those patients. So it's hard not to recommend them. Sure. Yeah. What an amazing success story, but yes, definitely proceed with caution. And there is a lot we don't know about, uh, about this field, this area. Um, so if you could say one thing or a few things to PM&R residents, um, what would you tell them uh, would be a couple things they could do to best care for the elderly population? Let's say we get an admission and they're an elderly patient, what are some things that should be in the forefront of our minds so that we provide the best care we can? Um, I think it's the five M's. Um, the fifth M I think is the most important, what matters most. You get so much information from the patient about what matters most to them. And a lot of times if you say what matters most to you and you listen to them and they feel heard, I feel like it just, it improves so much the relationship and the quality for the patient. Because a lot of times, like I mentioned during my um, talk today, I, you know, 
nobody asked what matters most to you. We go in and we have a goal. We're just like, okay, we're going to go and we're going to see the patient for this, this, and this. And we don't even know if that's really what they want. So if we start in and say, you know what, I'm seeing you here for mobility, um, but I kind of wanted to talk to you first about what matters most to you. What would your goals be? And then seeing again, kind of using that remap and can you as a physician help um, what you're able to provide and what they want most and help that align is golden. Yeah, yeah, that's a very important subject. And, uh, you know, I, I, I uh, had a geriatrics rotation in school and I think one of the things that I enjoyed most from that rotation is uh, just hearing the patient's life story. We, in that setting, we see them kind of um, to retirement or maybe a little later and they've done all these amazing things throughout their life. And uh, it's so fascinating to hear what they did in their life. And the same thing applies, I think, to um, rehab patients. We see them after an acute event. And one of the most uh, satisfying things for me is hearing, uh, hearing about their life and what they did and what they do. It's, uh, it's really important. And I think that, that usually guides um, what is most important to them, or it can guide that. I agree. I feel like, you know, especially when patients come in and they have their cell phone and they're like, oh, this was him a month ago, or this was her a month ago. Um, and it's also telling to see how much they've changed over a month because you can see weight loss from a picture. You can see mobility from a picture. You can see how they dress from a picture or they, did they stop shaving or, you know, I had this patient who came in um, to my clinic and she always wore Coco Chanel always dressed up, always, you know, she was like in her late 80s, she always had her hair and her roots done. And she came in, this was the last time I actually saw her, um, but her hair wasn't done. She didn't smell like Coco Chanel. She was in pajamas with little slippers. Um, and I knew like just looking at her and, you know, you can see those changes. And sometimes if you don't have that established rapport, you can't see that change. And a lot of times when they're in the hospital, we don't see that because we're seeing them at one point in time, but really seeing pictures and hearing their life story really helps us guide their care. Um, um, and so, yeah, my patient, when she came in, I knew that this was kind of her end of life because she would have never let her roots go and she would have never had her Coco Chanel, never not worn her Coco Chanel perfume. She always smelled really good, um, but it was a telltale sign that, you know, there was something more going on. Sounds like a special woman. All right. Uh, last question. If you could snap your fingers in an ideal world and create a multidisciplinary care center for the population that you care for, what would that look like to you? So um, Dr. Carmel Dyer was one of my mentors and she um, was kind of the founder for elder mistreatment nationwide. And she actually dreamed big. Um, she dreamed um, for our Texas Elder Abuse and Mistreatment Team Institute um, and so because of her, we are like actually the only uh, university in the entire nation to um, have a partnership with Adult Protective Services. And so our geriatric doctors actually go into the home and do capacity assessments for Adult Protective Services. And one of her big dreams was having a geriatric hospital. 
And so in my ideal world, I would want to have a geriatric hospital. Um, you know, there's a pediatric hospital that specializes in children's care and children are different and they metabolize things different and we change medications for pediatric patients without a blink of an eye. And I feel like our older population is not looked at the same way, looked at as a different, um, a different entity like pediatrics. And so if I had a snap of my fingers, I'd have a, a geriatric hospital. Um, so Dr. Dyer, you know, she was a professor here at UT um, and she passed away this past May. Um, and I think a lot of her um, donors and the people that really, her patients that really advocated for a, ho a geriatric hospital are still trying to get this geriatric hospital. And so there isn't a geriatric hospital in the nation. And so that's what I would want. I would want a geriatric hospital where geri geriatricians could be there, geriatric nurses, continuity of care, and everyone kind of focused on the importance of older adults like we do for pediatrics. What a great idea. Yeah. All right. Um, Dr. Flores, thank you so much for a wonderful Grand Rounds talk, and thank you for volunteering your time to contribute to this podcast. Really appreciate uh, thoughtful answers and uh, taking time out of your day. Thank you so much for having me. My thank pleasure. you so much. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I would like to make it clear that we make every effort to broadcast correct information. We will double check facts and assertions, but we do ask our listeners to realize that medicine is a constantly changing science and an art. One physician may have an entirely different way of doing things from another, and any views expressed are solely those of the person expressing them. We welcome any comments, suggestions, and correction of errors. We do not accept any money, services, or sponsorship otherwise from pharmaceutical, supplement, or device companies. By listening to this podcast or reading this blog, you agree not to use this podcast or blog as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you may be treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog. Under no circumstances shall McGovern Medical School, any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog, or any employees, associates, or affiliates of UT Health be held responsible for damages arising from use of this podcast or blog. We are here to stimulate the dialogue. We are here to get the wheels spinning. We are here to spark new questions in the field of medicine. Thank you for listening.